Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was 19 years old, I was called to serve in a jury. It's an experience which I won't forget. The charge was a serious one. An 18-year-old man, the defendant, a motorcyclist, had pulled out into oncoming traffic. He had collided with a car coming in the opposite direction and tragically killed the person sat in the passenger seat. It was a very serious offence. He had pled guilty to the charge of death by careless driving. And now he was on trial for the more serious offence and carrying a much harsher penalty, death by dangerous driving. And over the course of the next three days, the fate of that young man, and whether he would spend the next five or ten years in prison, was about to be determined. I remember very clearly arriving at nine o'clock on the Monday morning. I remember being sat in silence with the other jurors, waiting to be called in. I remember the judge giving us very strict instructions. I remember him warning us solemnly about the duties that we were about to undertake, the importance of not discussing the case outside of the outside of the, uh, the jury deliberation room. And in every aspect, there was a strict observance for the process of justice. There would be an order. The charge would be read. The defendant would have the opportunity to plead. Over the next three days, witnesses would be called. Evidence would be considered. People would be examined and cross-examined. The arguments of the defense and the prosecution would be made. And finally, the jury would go out to deliberate and to decide the verdict. All of that before sentence would ever be imposed. I think it's important that as we begin today's passage in uh, John, 8 verse, uh, John 18 verse 28, to be reminded that what we've seen in the preceding uh, verses is a complete mockery of justice. Uh, what have we seen so far? We have seen the arrest of Jesus at night time under a cover of darkness. This is an arrest that has been facilitated by the, facilitated by the betrayal of Judas, a betrayal that he was willing to do for money. We have a trial that happens uh, impromptu overnight in the house of Annas or Caiaphas. And here, very pointedly, no charges are really brought to Jesus, not in John's account. No witnesses are called forth. No evidence is really given. And Jesus himself draws attention to this fact. He draws attention that he has spoken openly in the world. He has always taught in the synagogues and in the temples. Nothing he has said has been secret. And so it, they would know if he has a case to answer. Instead, uh, that is not the purpose of the trial. The purpose of the trial of Jesus, uh, according to the chief priests, is to secure the sentence, to secure the penalty, to get death. And that is where we start today in our passage. We begin with a scene outside of uh, Pilate's headquarters. Uh, it is early in the morning uh, and the Jews come uh, towards Pilate and Pilate goes outside and says in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? Uh, that is the proper way for him to behave. That is the right 
uh, legal process. What is the charge? What is the indictment that you bring? But notice in verse 30 how arrogantly the Jews respond, right? They answered him, if this man was not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, Pilate, look, you don't have to question us. You don't have to question our process of law, whether we've got evidence, whether we've got witnesses, uh, whether this man is indeed guilty. You don't need to do any of that. We say he's guilty. We're just coming to you to pass the sentence. And Pilate knows this, and he's going to put the Jews firmly in their place because he's the one, remember, who has the authority. Verse 31, he says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But of course, Pilate knows full well why the Jews are coming to him, and he knows that they can't impose the sentence of death, that they are under the thumb of the Roman rulers, that the Jews need Pilate. And so the Jews have to concede, verse 31, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. See, and that betrays the real reason they're coming to, to Pilate. They don't want to determine guilt. They don't want to do any of that. They simply want to impose the penalty of death upon Jesus unjustly and give the veneer of legal process to what is otherwise an unlawful killing. So that's the first scene. The second scene moves indoors and we have a, uh, a discussion between Pilate and Jesus, or rather an interrogation. And quickly, this turns to the focus of kingship. Have a look at verse 33. Pilate entered his headquarters again, called Jesus and sent him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, of course, the claim to be the king of the Jews would be a claim to insurrection against the Roman authorities. And this is what we see in the other Gospels, that this is the charge that is leveled against Jesus, that he is uh, leading a rebellion against Rome, and thus he is a threat to Rome and implicitly a threat to the peace of the Jews in Jerusalem. But notice here what, what Pilate points out is that he doesn't really look like a king, does he? Not as he is uh, standing there being handed over by the Jews. Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You see, if you think about the game of chess, you give up every other piece that you have on the board apart from your king. The king is the most valuable piece. It's the, it's the piece that you cannot afford to lose. You will trade away your pawns, you'll trade away your knights, you'll trade away your rooks, you'll even trade away your bishops to save the king. But here, the Jews, the, the spiritual leaders, the religious authorities have handed Jesus, the king of the Jews, over to Pilate. Doesn't look like a king. But of course, Jesus then doesn't deny that he's a king, but he has to redefine for Pilate the very nature of his kingship, the, the character, the quality of it. Jesus answered, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. As Jesus is saying that the nature of his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom that has ever uh, occurred in the face of the earth. It's not a military kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. It's not supported by flesh and blood. It is a spiritual kingdom. Uh, it is a kingdom uh, that uh, that is unlike any other. 
at this point, Jesus uh, redirects the, the interrogation away from kingship uh, and starts to declare to Pilate what is his uh, purpose. Verse 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Right? Picking up the language that we saw earlier in the year uh, in John 1, the purpose for which he has entered the world, come into the world, and here we see it is to bear witness to the truth. Now this has got a, a theme that goes right the way throughout John's Gospel, that Jesus is here to bear witness, uh, that he is there to bear witness to the truth because he is the truth. But it goes beyond John's Gospel, and I think it's picking up something that we see in Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, one of the themes that we see is we see the, the courtroom theme. Uh, as we look in Isaiah 40 onwards, uh, there is this uh, uh, there is uh, a situation described in which God is calling all of the nations to trial before him. This is going to be the end trial, the judgment of the world. Uh, and he invites all of the nations to come and to bring their idols and to bear witness uh, that they are true. And of course, they cannot do that. The contrast is supposed to be that, that God is going to call his people, uh, his nation, and they are supposed to bear witness before all of the other idolatrous nations that he alone is God. Have a look at Isaiah 43, uh, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 43, verses 9 and 10. All the nations gather together. And the peoples assemble. The court is being called. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? In other words, which of these nations and their idols could proclaim the future, could govern the course of history? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. All of these idols are supposed to come, they're supposed to demonstrate that, that they can indeed control history as Yahweh does, but of course they fail. And so God declares to his people, to his servant, verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. See, God is now going to call in the midst of this trial, his own people here as his servant to testify that he is the one true God in distinction to the idols. The one who saves, the one who proclaims, the one who declares the end from the beginning. And so here, as we look at Jesus' trial, Jesus is that final servant Jesus is the one who comes and bears witness as the true Israel to the true God. He is the one who has come from above, who knows God intimately and can testify before all of the nations that this indeed is the one true God. Something that we have seen in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, the theme of testimony there is picked up as Jesus talks with Nicodemus, but I'm going to look at the end of that chapter in what I think is John's narrative comment about Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 
31. This is what he says about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all, right? The, the, the heavenly one is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's speaking about the rest of us. Now, he who comes from heaven is above all. And this one bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Right? So the one who comes from heaven, the one who is above, the one who knows the Father intimately, being one with the Father, he is above all and he is able to bear witness to what he has seen and heard. Why? Because he is of heaven. He is from above. But verse 33, the tragedy of this is that no, uh, whoever, sorry, not the tragedy of this, sorry, we'll come to that. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. So you have the one coming from above, Jesus. He is bearing witness to what he has seen and heard, his knowledge of the true God, the Father. And whoever receives the testimony of Jesus, well, sets his seal that God is true. Right? You see, believing in the testimony of Jesus who's come down to bear witness is believing in the truth of the one God. This therefore means that, that what we have in the trial of Jesus is actually a deep irony. You see, the irony runs all the way throughout John's Gospel, and it is particularly uh, obvious in the, in the crucifixion narrative and in what we see here. Uh, for example, earlier in our passage, we saw that the, the Jews did not want to go into Pilate's headquarters because they were unwilling to defile themselves before they ate the Passover. They were perfectly content to be putting an innocent man to his death. Right? That wouldn't be defiling them. Of course it does. But they don't want to go into the house of this Gentile because, no, that would defile them in the presence of God. That is clearly ironic. Uh, they want to eat the Passover whilst all the time actually being instrumental in the process uh, of bringing Jesus, the true Passover lamb, uh, to his death that very day. But the irony that I want to pick up here is that it looks throughout all of this process that Jesus is the one on trial, right? He's the one on trial before the chief priests, and he's the one on trial before uh, Pilate. But actually, I think what John is saying is that the reverse is the case. Pilate here is the one who is on trial. Uh, Pilate is, is the one that this Gentile who is brought before Jesus, brought before his God, uh, and uh, Jesus is the one who is testifying to the truth. But how does Pilate respond? Pilate responds, verse 38, what is truth? Right? Jesus just said, whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. Is Pilate listening to the truth? Well, no, he is not. And so therefore, the words of John 3, the, the conclusion of that chapter, are, are very uh, um, uh, give us a terrible picture of Pilate's true situation. John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Right, and this is uh, carrying on with what has been said earlier in that chapter, John 3, 18. Whoever believes 
in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, uh, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. You see, Pilate is standing in the presence of Jesus. He's standing in the presence of the Son of God. He's standing in the presence of God's definitive witness to this world, the one who reveals uh, God in all of his fullness, in all of his truth. And Pilate has rejected Jesus. He's not interested. And therefore, the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, rests upon him. Pilate's about to condemn Jesus. But actually now Pilate, in the ultimate sense, is standing condemned before his God and before his judge. Now, this conclusion, I think, is confirmed in what we see next. Right? What does Pilate do? Well, Pilate keeps saying in, in the next couple of verses and in chapter 19 that he finds no guilt in Jesus. Right? Verse uh, 38, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man. Right? Well, if he finds no guilt in Jesus, what is the correct course of action? to release him. I think often when we read this passage, the, the thing that we see is we see the awful predicament that Pilate is in. We see the kind of the, the political tension that he's in. We might even say to ourselves, he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to appease the Jews. He doesn't want an insurrection. He's also trying to get Jesus off, you know, cut him a bit of slack, give him a break. He's being annoyed uh, by these chief priests. But you see, that's still not justice. Right? Justice demands here that the innocent man is released. And justice demands that the innocent man is not put to death for the sake of political expediency. There is a clear right and there is a clear wrong here. And Pilate has decided to follow the easy path, the path of expediency, the path of putting an innocent man to his death. And he may be trying to get around it by offering up Barabbas and hoping that the crowd will choose Jesus instead of this insurrectionist. But no, in the final irony of the passage, who does the crowd choose? The crowd chooses the one who is a robber, who is evil, who does deserve to be condemned instead of the man who is innocent. Right? Pilate has kind of demonstrated the justice of his own condemnation by the evil action of, of uh, sending Jesus unjustly to be crucified. So what do we learn throughout this passage? Well, I think there are, there are two things that I want to point out. The first one is we know God's concern for justice. Uh, and I think it, it is extremely important to see that God's concern is for absolute justice and individual justice. Uh, there's no such thing really as, as a greater good uh, that enables us to be unjust for the sake of what we deem to be a higher goal. Pilate is wrong here to be sending Jesus to his death. Uh, often, I think, one of the problems that we have is that we, we are innately pragmatic. Uh, we seem to think that if we can weigh up the good and the bad, so long as the, the, the thing that we're choosing is mostly good, uh, then that will justify our action in the heavenly court, right? If we have to do a little bit of sin or something that's a little bit immoral or a little bit unholy in order to do something that's, that, that's the greater good, including in ministry, then, then that's okay, we'll do that. 
But that's not right, right? God doesn't tolerate any sin. He doesn't tolerate any unholiness. And he doesn't tolerate any injustice, right? We cannot say that we will allow ourselves to wink at or to ignore any injustice for the sake of what we perceive to be a higher end. That is uh, truly evil. The second thing which I think we need to see is that there is uh, a uh, the clear sign of God's providential sovereign control over this event. Right? This is not an accident. God has ordained this event so that Jesus would be handed over, uh, betrayed by Judas, handed over by the Jews to Pilate, and then have a judicial sentence of death imposed upon him. Why? Well, because Jesus has to undergo everything which we rightly deserve. Uh, Jesus has to experience the, the humiliation of being tried, of being found guilty, even though he is fully innocent, and being sentenced to death, because that is what we deserve. We deserve to be uh, tried uh, publicly and, and uh, in a way that uh, uh, exhibits fully the, the extent of our guilt, and we deserve the condemnation of death. And it's at this point that God, the Father, is about to lay upon his son the full punishment and the penalty of our sin, so that in, in our place he might bear the full wrath and condemnation of God that we may not have to. So what we have is, in a sense here, an inversion of what will happen at the end of time for us. Jesus is innocent. He is unjustly found guilty. He is then punished uh, uh, to, to death. Whereas we, who are guilty, God will look at us in Christ and declare us innocent. And we will not have to face the penalty that we justly deserve because Jesus has taken it in our place. Jesus went through the full process of, uh, of, of the trial uh, and of the, the condemnation and of the death so that we who believe in him may not be condemned but would stand forgiven in God's final tribunal. And so brothers and sisters, I pray that as we consider these things that we would be uh, heartened and thankful uh, that God has so worked to forgive us our sins in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you that you sent your Son to bear witness to the truth. Uh, thank you that you sent him that he would in our place stand condemned, uh, that you would place upon him the full penalty of our sins, and that thereby you may forgive us all of our sin and wrongdoing. And we thank and praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.